Friends, this is the moment you've waited for. I can't forget that day because I was right, I was right there. I sat right next to him. You see, this was before, this was before he got real popular and everybody crowded around and you couldn't really get access to him. But on this day, I was right there. I remember it was so hot out. The afternoons were so hot that time of year. We had huddled up under the tree trying to find any shade that we could find on that hillside. I remember seeing the sunbeams just pierce right through the branches. But I'll tell you this, it was not, it was not the heat that had our attention that day. What had our attention that day were his words. My goodness, these words. How on earth did this carpenter from Nazareth have so much wisdom? Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. There's no wise teachers. There's no philosophers that come out of Nazareth. How did he get this kind of wisdom? How could he see into our hearts like this? He didn't have notes. He didn't have a scroll. It was like these things came right off the top of his mind. It was like they came right out of his own heart. Nobody ever taught like this. Where did this kind of teaching come from? He was just a man. He, he was right in front of us. We could touch him. But I'm telling you, there was something otherworldly about him. I remember what he told us. He told us, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Nobody had ever told, that, told us that before. We were always told, blessed are the powerful, blessed are the wealthy. They're the ones that God's favor rests on, not the poor in spirit like me. He said, pray for those that are your enemies. Love those that persecute you. He told us, don't store up money for yourself here on earth, but store up treasure for yourself in heaven. And I'm telling you, when he said this, it was like he had seen heaven. It was like he knew from firsthand experience how much better heaven was than this place. He told us, don't worry about your clothes. Don't worry about food. You have a father in heaven that will take care of every single one of your needs. And it was like he knew the father. It was like he had met him. It was like he was speaking from firsthand experience, not something he had read in a book. It was like he knew it. He said, look out, there's people coming that will deceive you. They're gonna try to pervert what I've told you today. But you know what I remember more than anything else? I remember how he ended his sermon. I remember because it happened quickly. He'd only been speaking 20 or 30 minutes. I mean, it went by so fast. Truth is, we could have listened to him for days. He wasn't like the Pharisees. He wasn't like the scribes who just lectured and went on and on and on. No, he was powerful. He was efficient in his words. And his words have stuck in my brain ever since that day. And here's what he said. Everyone, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. And the rains fell and the floods came and the wind blew and beat against that house, but it did not fall because it had been built on the rock. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house upon the sand and the floods came, the rains fell, the wind blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great, and great was the fall of it. 
As you can tell, I have a vivid imagination. My mom used to tell me that she uh, would watch me play with my little toys for just hours and hours, and I'd be oblivious to everything that's going on. And still to this day, I catch my imagination kind of transporting me into different places. And as I was studying this text that we're going to look at today, I started catching myself kind of picturing myself right on the hillside, watching Jesus speak, listening to him teach. And I started asking myself a question. I started asking myself, why did Jesus end the greatest piece of teaching mankind has ever heard? Why did he end it the way that he ended it? Because if I was Jesus, you know what I would have done? I would have done maybe like a little David Blaine levitation in front of everyone. I would have maybe called down some angels. This guy is awesome. Listen to him. I would have done something miraculous. Jesus talked about rock and sand. Why? I mean, is that any way to end the greatest sermon mankind has ever heard? Well, in typical Jesus fashion, there's a lot more to what he said here than might meet the eye. And what I want to do is unpack this text today with you. If you've got your Bibles, grab them. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. One of our ushers will come get a Bible to you. Uh, You'll find Matthew 7 in our Bibles on page 812. If you've got a Bible on your smartphone or your tablet, you're more than welcome to use that as well. While we're passing out Bibles, let me introduce myself. My name's Chad. I'm one of the pastors here at Shelter Cove. If you are a guest with us for the first time, welcome. We just love that you're here with us. I want to give a big shout out to all of you joining us online. It's great to have you here also. Uh, Let's do this. Let's pray, and then we'll get rolling here with Matthew 7 as we close out our series on the greatest sermon ever. Father, pray, God, that you would pray that you would speak to us now, Lord. God, I pray that we would hear from on high. God, I pray that you give us ears that really hear. Jesus, your words are so spectacular and and masterful here. I just feel kind of small to the task of being able to teach them and, and really like unpacking everything that's here. So I pray that you would help me. Pray that you give me, God, the right words and and the right heart to speak this, Lord. And I thank you, God, I thank you that we can all gather here together and do this. I pray these things in your wonderful name. Amen. Well, I, I am and I definitely was in my past. I was and still am to this day a very, very, very big fan of the Batman mythology. And I just want to dispel something right out of the gates. Batman is vastly superior to any and all Marvel superheroes, okay? We just need to make sure we have that clear right out of the gates. And if he got into a fight with Superman, Batman would win every single day. He just would. Um, and if you don't agree with me, I'll pray for you that you one day see the light, that you one day will, will know the truth. Batman is just the best. There's a couple of things that really drew me into the whole Batman story arc, the whole Batman narrative. I love that he's kind of a, kind of a dark, conflicting character. Right? He's the Dark Knight. He's got a troubled past, but yet he fights for justice and he fights for the oppressed. I love that he's like an agent of, of good and an agent of justice. What really drew me into the Batman narrative, though, were the villains. Batman fights the most psychologically complex villains of any superhero. And the best villain in my mind is, is the Riddler. I love the Riddler. You know, if you don't know like the whole MO of the Riddler, what he would do is commit all these different crimes and then he would leave puzzles, he'd leave riddles. And the puzzles or riddles would lead to either his next crime or where he's hiding. So he was like daring the police. He was like daring Batman. I dare you to try and outsmart me. I dare you to try and find me. 
And what I loved about the Riddler is, as I'd be reading the comics or watching the cartoons, whatever it might be, the Riddler had this way of pulling you into the story. Because when you would see the riddle, you would start to try and solve it with Batman. You'd try and be like, okay, Batman, you and I, man, we're going to solve this puzzle. We're going to figure this out. And you'd kind of get pulled into the story. You would try to help figure out what's going on. Now, as Jesus teaches all through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you see him do something very similar. Jesus uses something called a parable. A parable is a story. He would tell these stories in such a way that when you and I hear them, we start to place ourselves into the story. We start to see ourselves in the light of the story. The same way the Riddler would kind of pull us in, Jesus would do the exact same thing. And it's what he does here in Matthew 7. He tells a parable of two different builders, a wise builder and a foolish builder. Now we're going to spend a lot of time focusing on the wise builder first, and then as we get towards the end, we'll talk a little bit more about the foolish builder. In your notes, let's look now at the wise builder. First characteristic we see about the wise builder. The wise builder hears the word of Christ. The wise builder hears the word of Christ. In the text, here's how it is written. Everyone then who hears these words of mine. Now, we've got to differentiate between the way that you and I speak about hearing and the way the Bible speaks about hearing. The Bible's got something very different to say about hearing. There's two kinds of hearing in the scriptures. There's hearing in such a way where you receive physical auditory sounds in your ear canal. But then there's hearing the way Jesus will say, hearing with ears that hear. It's hearing in such a way where it penetrates the mind, it penetrates the heart, it changes who you are. If you ever have been around a kid, if you've ever seen a kid, been around them, you will notice that they have something that they develop from a very early age called selective hearing, especially when it comes to their mom. Billy, go clean up your room. Little Billy's playing Xbox. Okay. 20 minutes later, what's little Billy doing? Still playing Xbox. There's a difference between physically receiving sound and then hearing in a way that it penetrates the mind and the heart. It shapes, it changes, it compels. It's internalizing what is heard here. Now when Jesus says, anyone who hears these words of mine, what he's speaking about are the previous chapters, the five, six, and seven, the Sermon on the Mount. So for the audience in that immediate context, he's saying, if you apply the sermon you've just heard, you'll be building your life upon the rock. For us today, does this mean we have to limit it to just five, six, and seven, chapters five, six, and seven? I would argue that the entire Bible is the word of Christ. The entire Bible is the word of Christ. Chad, why do you argue that? I'm so glad you asked. Thank you for asking. You seem to always ask the right questions. Here's why. 2 Timothy 3.16 says all scripture. How much is all? It's all. It's not that hard. Come on, stick with me. It's not that hard. It's all. All scripture is God breathed. All breathed out by God. Guess who Jesus is? He's God in human flesh. The fullness of divinity dwelling bodily. He's the fullness of God. Jesus is not just a good teacher. Not just some wise dude. He's the fullness of God in bodily form. So then, if all scriptures 
breathed out by God, inspired by God. Man didn't come up with this. Man wrote it, but it was not our idea. If this was our idea, don't you think we'd paint ourselves a little bit better? This Bible makes humans look dumb. I think we would have cleaned it up a little bit. No, no, no. This was God's idea. And since Jesus is God, then it's very safe to say all of this is the word of Christ. This is why when we stand up here, whether it's myself, whether it's Scott, whether it's Jeremy, we're going to do all we can to not tell you what we think, but tell you what the Bible says. Do you want to know why? Because I'm stupid. Jesus is just way smarter. He's way, way smarter. You would be far better served hearing from Jesus than hearing from Chad. So we're going to do all we can to tell you what Jesus has to say. I mean, it was all I could do last week to not stand up in the back and just be like, yeah, Scott, preach it. Because he was coming up here saying, no, this church is anchored on the word of God. And we're going to do all we can to do that. The wise builder hears in a way that penetrates the mind, penetrates the heart, and it's the word of Christ. It's the scriptures. It's the truth, the truth of God's word. Next point in your notes. The wise builder does something else. The wise builder does the word of Christ. The wise builder does the word of Christ. We see it right here in this passage. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Okay, when we speak about doing the word of Christ, we have got to be so careful because there have been a ton of really bad theologies, a ton of bad ideas that have come out of not understanding the proper motivations for obedience. People have been very, very hurt, very, very disillusioned. People have really harmed themselves by not understanding the proper motivation for obedience. I'm one of those people. I'm one of those people that didn't understand it properly. So when we speak about doing the word of God, doing the word of Christ, what compels us to do this? What's the proper motivation? In your notes, the wise builder is motivated first and foremost by the Spirit, by the Spirit of God. You're like, Chad, that sounds a little bit weird. I don't even know what that means. What exactly is the Spirit of God? Let me tell you. When we say the Spirit of God, or you may say, hear it like this, the Holy Spirit. You may even hear some people say the Holy Ghost. The Holy Spirit of God is the third person of the triune Godhead. The Holy Spirit is not some minor league version of God, not some peewee football version of God, not some travel size version of God. The Holy Spirit is God in his fullness, God in his co-equal, co-eternal power with the Son and with the Father. And what Ephesians 1 says is when a man or woman comes to faith in Jesus Christ, that God, the triune third member of the, of the Godhead, dwells in the heart of the believer. Holy moly, that's crazy. The Bible just said God takes up residence in the heart of a believer. That's crazy. The God that speaks galaxies into existence, who terrifies demons just when they look at him, lives in our soul. Are you kidding me? This is bonkers. It's what the prophet Ezekiel was so stoked about when he wrote Ezekiel 36. Israel, there's coming a day. 
There's coming a day where your hard heart will be removed and a heart of flesh will be put in, where God's laws will be written on your soul, will no longer be imposed from the outside in. The Holy Spirit of God takes up residence in us and starts to motivate us to obedience. Let me explain how that works. The way this works is God will start to renew and regenerate, and and let me explain it simply. He starts to give you new cravings. He starts to give you new desires. Look right at me, look at me. Christianity is miserable, miserable and oppressive without the indwelling power of God. It's miserable. Some of you might be trying to do it right now. You might be trying to live out Christianity void of the Holy Spirit of God. Let me know how that works for you. It'll end in one of two areas. You'll either be a type A person that drinks a ton of coffee and can kind of white knuckle grip your own obedience, but you'll probably become a self-righteous, hypocritical jerk. We all know how fun those people are to be around. Or you'll end up like me, disillusioned, burned out, tired from trying to live up to a standard you can never achieve. Doing the word of Christ has got to be compelled by the renewing spirit of God. He starts to give us new cravings, new desires. It's the craziest thing. It is the wildest thing because there's all kinds of stuff in church that I used to mock and laugh at that I now catch myself do. I used to come in here and laugh at people or raising their hands and crying in church during worship. I'll never do that. I'm tough. Now you catch me over in that corner, I'll be bawling like a little three-year-old girl. Jesus, I love you so much. Because he's changed the desires of my heart. I didn't change them. It's not because Chad is holy. It's not because I'm perfect and righteous. He, by his grace, started going, no, I'm going to rework the cravings of your heart. For some people, this happens quick. For some, it happens slower. I was a little bit slower on the more slow end of the spectrum. But he'll start to rewire your heart. The sin that you used to go to, the disobedience that you used to take such delight in, all of a sudden kind of seems a little bit stupid. Oh, man, that doesn't really satisfy like it used to. Why, why am I bothered by this now? That used to be so much fun. Why does it leave such a bad taste in my mouth now? That's the Holy Spirit of God working. That's the Holy Spirit of God saying, I'm going to rework, I'm going to motivate you unto holiness. He gives you new cravings, new desires. This is why Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. He didn't say, blessed are those who begrudgingly and resentfully keep the commands. He didn't say that. He said, blessed are those whose hearts crave it. They're yearning after God. Look, if we could manufacture this, we would manufacture it. We could do it. We can't. The Holy Spirit of God is what creates this in us. And it's got to be the primary motivation unto holiness, unto following the word of Christ. As this grows, something else starts to grow. Next point in your notes. The wise builder will be motivated by love, not trying to earn salvation. The wise builder will be compelled by an ever-increasing love in their heart. Probably the biggest mistake I could commit today is standing up here and telling you that your salvation is dependent on your obedience to the word of God. 
That's probably the biggest error I could, I could make. Listen, if our obedience dictates whether or not we're saved, you and I are all, I need to filter. I need to be careful here. Um, it's the Holy Spirit working, see? It's living proof. Seven years ago, I would have said a very inappropriate word there. You and I are all in big trouble. How's that? Thank you, Jesus. We are in big trouble if it's dependent on our obedience. The entire point of the gospel is you can't live up to the standard. That cross is a massive indictment against all mankind, everybody. That's what I love about the gospel. It's an equal opportunity offender. <laughs> Points out everybody. Hey, you're broken, you're broken, you're broken, you're broken, you're broken, you're broken. Oh, you're rich, you're broken. Oh, you're poor, you're broken. Oh, you're black, you're white, you're brown. Oh, you're all broken. Guess what? Everybody's broken. The wonderful truth about the gospel then is that Christ has fulfilled the law on our behalf. Guess where we read that? Sermon on the Mount, chapter five. He's fulfilled the law on our behalf. And now by faith in him, we can have righteousness. So here's how this all works out. The Holy Spirit creating new desires in us. We start to taste and see that God really is good. I think that's one of the biggest steps forward in the life of a believer. When they truly taste and see that God is good, that his ways are good. Because until then, it just looks like God's working against you. But when you really see, oh, Jesus, you're not against me. Jesus, your ways are for my joy. The commands of the scriptures are for my life, for my joy, for my freedom. You're not against me. You're spectacularly good. That creates love in the heart for him. It endears your heart to him. I always want to try and communicate this up here because I missed it for years. <clears throat> I just missed it for all those years. I, I thought Jesus' laws were just trying to keep me from having fun. I thought Jesus was kind of a grumpy old man up in the clouds that didn't want me to ever laugh or have fun. And what I've learned over the years is that he's a loving, good shepherd trying to lead a dumb sheep like me to waters and pastures that will never, ever dissatisfy. How much better of a motivation is this when we're motivated by the Spirit, motivated by love, versus fearful trepidation of God's wrath? Like, how much better is it to be motivated by the power of God and by an increasing love, not trying to earn salvation, but a love for him, versus, well, I better go to church, because if not, I'm going to hell. Well, I better not cuss, I better not drink, better not have sex before marriage, because if not, I'm going to hell. That's a hard way to live. And it won't sustain you. You won't make it. You'll give up. What does sustain is God Almighty giving us new cravings, new heart. The heart truly seeing Jesus is for you, brother or sister. He's not against you. He's good. So, because the wise builder hears the word, does the word, motivated by the Spirit, motivated by love, 
next point in your notes, when the storms come, the wise builder survives. The wise builder survives when the storm comes. Here's what it says. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Now there's two levels to the storms that Jesus presents here. The storm speaks of two different aspects. The first aspect is that life sometimes just rears up and kicks you in the face. The other aspect is that there's coming a day of judgment. All of us will stand before Jesus. So let's talk about these two aspects here, these two areas. Um, If you live long enough, you're going to see that life just sometimes does a 180 on you. Uh, I heard a pastor say that all of us are one phone call away from everything changing. One phone call. That's how fragile our little house of cards is. Everything, just one phone call can be dismantled. And if you live long enough, you'll experience that. Some of you are in that right now. I'm glad you're here. Life gets really, really hard. And what the scriptures are saying here, the wise builder has a foundation to go to that will help them through the midst of these storms. Look at me. It doesn't make them immune. It doesn't make them impervious. It doesn't make them Superman. It doesn't make them like impossible to feel any kind of pain. In fact, the Bible doesn't lie to us. It's going to say, no, you will feel pain. You will cry. You are going to hurt. You are going to lay in bed at night and go, God, why? Why is this happening to me? If you've ever been there, you're amongst really good company because all the titans of scripture, the men and women of deep faith at one point or another felt that. Why? Why are we going through this? In the midst of that though, the wise builder will have like an air of godliness to him, like an aroma of godliness. There will be little slivers and little hints of of something supernatural and godly. It's something that the foolish builder just cannot possess. Let me give you an example. In 2006, at an Amish school, there was a very troubled man that tied up 10 young girls at this elementary school, shot them, and then turned the gun on himself. Hours. It was hours later, not days, not weeks, not months. It was hours later. The family members, the Amish family members of those girls, the moms, the dads, the aunties, the uncles, the grandparents, stood at a press conference with eyes swollen from crying, with noses that were raw from all the Kleenex, and they said, we forgive this man. We're praying for his soul because he now stands before a just God. That's someone. Say whatever you want to say about the Amish, but that's someone. That's life is built on the rock. In the midst of pain, devastated, confused, why? There's still an air of godliness. So life will sometimes rear up and just punch you in the face, but there's coming a day then for all of us, the second level of the storm, where, where we will face God. We will be face to face with our maker. And when you and I come into contact with the whole perfection and purity and holiness of Jesus himself, There's only one foundation that's going to withstand that kind of perfection. Do you know what it is? The imputed righteousness of Jesus. That's it. 
That's it. Like when the time comes for me, however long or short that may be, I'm not gonna stand before Jesus and when he asks me, why should I give you access to the throne of God's grace? I'm not gonna say, well, because I preached your word. He's gonna be like, bro, you didn't even preach that well. <laughs> well, because I led mission trips. Yeah, you were kind of a bad leader. Uh, because I tithed, because I went to the homeless shelter, because blah, 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 I did all these things. None of that will cut it compared to the perfect holiness of God. The only thing that's gonna cut it in front of that kind of holiness is perfect holiness. And that comes from Jesus himself. When we place our faith in him, he imputes to us, gives to us his righteousness. So on that day, I'll stand before him. No, I won't stand. Because the scriptures say there's coming a day where every knee will bow. I heard a pastor say, you'll bow or you'll bow. And it'll either be really good or it's going to be a rough, rough day. So on that day, I'll kneel before him and say, Christ, I have access to the throne of grace because your blood was shed for me. You emptied your veins out for me. If that doesn't give me access to the throne of grace, I don't have access to the throne. I've got no access into heaven. But I'm confident, Jesus, that you bore all my sin and shame, all my sin, past, present, and future, laid on you, and I possess the righteousness of Christ because you're merciful. So the wise builder can withstand the storms of life. The wise builder can withstand the judgment that's coming because his life is built on the rock. All right, now, I told you, we we're gonna take a long time to talk about that. And I took a long time to talk about that. I know we're approaching lunch. I'm hungry too. Let's go through the foolish builder. Let's knock this out. The foolish builder then. In your notes, the foolish builder, in the same way, hears the word of Christ. The foolish builder hears. This is what the text says. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The massive difference between the foolish builder and the wise builder is that the foolish builder only physically receives auditory sound. There's no penetration into the heart and mind. There's no compelling unto action. Next point in your notes. The foolish builder ignores the word of Christ. They hear it, but they hear it as if it's white noise in the background. They hear it as if, ah, whatever. Ah, whatever, I don't really need to pay attention to that. So the question becomes then, what would motivate somebody to reject and to push away such beauty of truth, such wonderful, glorious truth, such wisdom? What would compel somebody to go, nah, I'm cool. Next point in your notes. The foolish builder will be motivated by pride. Pride. It's a great verse in the Bible. A couple different variations of it, but it goes like this. Pride goes before a fall. Oh, so you've heard of it. Pride goes before a fall. Pride looks like this. Pride is the inner monologue in the heart and mind. It's the inner dialogue if you want to parse yourself up like that. It's the inner dialogue that says, I'm fine. No, I'm cool. I'm fine by my own. I'm smart enough. I'm talented enough. I'm strong enough. I don't need help. You know who really needs help? 
it's the drug addicts, it's the homeless, it's the people that got some kind of disorder, it's those people, they need help, but me? No, I'm good, I'm fine. Look at what I've built, look at what I can accomplish, look at my strengths. I'm definitely not gonna listen to that young pastor tell me I need Jesus. No, I'm cool on my own. I don't need his help, I don't need their help, I don't need anyone's help, I got it. The scriptures go, okay, but there's a fall coming. It's foolishness to think like that. It's foolishness. And if it's not pride, the, the foolish builder will be motivated in your notes by deception. Deception takes all kinds of different forms. Self-deception is the big one. I heard a pastor say this, nobody has lied to you more than you. Nobody. You want to know how I know that's true? Because nobody's lied to me more than me. I lie to myself way more than you lie to me. I forget about what Jesus has done. I forget about how he has secured my salvation by his perfect work on the cross. I forget. I start making life about works, about being good enough. I start telling myself that this sin will satisfy me. I start telling myself, you've been good for a while. Why don't you give in and enjoy a little sin? Thinking that that's gonna fulfill, thinking that that's gonna satisfy. It doesn't. And here's the deal. If I don't lie to myself, then here's the other layer of deception. Everything else in the world will deceive. Everything else in the world will try to skew the truth. I mean, like all of media and advertising is based on a lie. All of advertising can be summed up like this. You're miserable, buy this product so you'll be happy. All the while the scriptures go, no, Christ is everything you need. You're miserable, buy our shoes, you'll be happy. You're miserable, buy this car, you'll be happy. You're miserable, eat our cheeseburger, you'll be happy. Sometimes that actually works, all right? Let's be honest. <laughs> be motivated by deception. How do we battle against deception? We've, we've got to know what this book says. We've got to know what the word of Christ has to say. You see, what Jesus is telling us today is there's two options. And I know this might be a little hard to hear. I know that, that this might come across a little bit abrasive, but I just love you enough to tell you what Jesus said. Everyone else in the world, like everyone else that's a part of the world, will lovingly and gently coax you into hell, telling you lies the entire way in. I just care about you too much. I love you too much to spare you from the weight of God's word. And the way, the, the way Jesus ends this is by presenting, there's two options. You've got two choices, your way or Jesus' way. You can do life. Those are your options, your way or Christ's way. And there's a really great proverb that kind of sums up this dichotomy. I think it just presents it beautifully clear. Proverbs 14 says this. We're going to read it on the screens here. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the what? The way to death. Okay, so everyone in, everyone in here thinks that we're smart enough. We know the right way. Do what feels right. Follow your own heart. I mean, that's instinctively what we think is right. And that's what everything else is preaching out there. 
do what you want, when you want it, how you want it, with who you want it with, and that will be the way to freedom. That will be the way to peace and happiness. And it feels right, kind of seems right at the outset, and the Bible goes, it'll kill you. That's where death is. On the flip side, Jesus offers this way. And he says it's the way unto life that's really life. It's the way that leads to fulfillment and peace here and now, but also into eternity, into a life with him forever. So here's a question I want to leave you with, and then we'll just watch this last text, this last passage. I love how this ends. The last question I want to ask you here says this. Whose word? Whose word is going to be the foundation of your life? You got two options, yours or Jesus. Before you pack up, watch how this ends. I just love these closing lines. Verse 28. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. That word astonished in Greek is, it's really hard to translate. There's no English equivalent to it. Uh, it literally in, in English means struck out of their minds. Almost like they got smacked upside the head and they're just like, whoa. You ever seen that emoji that has like the like brain explosion? That's kind of how I picture that. They were astonished for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. Jesus carried with him an air of authority, an air of grace, tenderness, love, and power that was unmatched. And, and I want to come to you today, not on my authority, but on the authority of Jesus and the authority of his word, pleading with you to choose Jesus' way. I, I can't make the call for you. You are free to make your own decision. But I do want to lovingly say to you, the grass is much greener on Jesus' side of the fence. Not always easier. Sometimes, most of the time, actually harder. Far better. Deeper joys, deeper pleasures, deeper life, deeper peace, and the hope of life eternal. Brother, sister, it's greener over here. And the invitation's on the table now for you to come and join. Let's be wise builders that build on the rock and live life the way Christ has laid out life to be lived. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you, Jesus, that you loved us enough to tell us the truth and to point us to life and life abundant. God, I pray now for myself and for my friends here. Help us, Lord. Help us to be people that build our lives on your foundation. Jesus, I, I want to be a man that's, that's compelled by the Spirit. I want to be a man whose heart is changed by you pray for a pure heart, God. And I pray that for my friends here, God, I pray that you would move them and change them and shape them. Jesus, I pray that when that day comes and we stand before you, we would be greeted with the sweet words, welcome home, good and faithful servant. Enter into your master's rest. Jesus, I just love you. I'm so grateful for all you've done for me.